choir, what a great piece. I love that song. Thank you all for sharing today. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. And uh, we're continuing our series, True Lines. And remember, right after the service today, we're having a brief church conference to elect uh, 12 men uh, to rotate the 12 rotating off of our 36 deacons. Hope that you can hang around uh, for that meeting. And uh, so, title the message today, and this will be a two-part message. It's called Sabbath, Law, and Grace. Father, thank you for your word and for your faithfulness, for being able to sing and gather with believers to worship you. Lord, through singing to you and about you, uh, Lord, through our giving and our praying, our encouraging each other, and now by heeding your word. God, I pray that through these messages, not only would you help us to understand the particular thing we're dealing with, but also, Lord, the broader understanding of how to handle our Bibles in a way that, Lord, uh, is right and good and edifying. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up, while my parents did not use the word Sabbath, we were, for all practical purposes, to some degree, uh, Sabbatarians. Our Sabbath was Sunday, but in the deep south where I lived, in Alabama, and it would have been true here as well, but we're also still in the deep south here somewhat in South Carolina. That's a joke. We're really in the deep south. The day was in many ways a day that was ruled by do's and particularly don'ts. On Sundays, we did go to church. In my case, Sunday school in the morning, followed by worship at that church right there, First Baptist Church, Oxford, Alabama. And the one on the right is the old worship center where I worship. The one on the left was built after I was grown. My father uh, carved the cross in that one that's over the baptistry. That's my home church where I grew up as a kid. So on Sundays, we'd go to church, Sunday school, then we'd go to worship. Then after church, we would eat lunch. And the debate grew over time um, whether or not it was a sin to eat out in a restaurant after church or should we always eat at home with family. I don't know if any of your families ever went through that discussion, but uh, we did. Eventually, I guess, it was decided that uh, it was... Not a sin to eat out after church on Sunday, and so we ate most Sundays at the Morrison's Cafeteria in the mall. I went through the same debate about eating out on a Sunday within myself and in my first church as I was trying to wrestle through these things uh, preaching. And so um, after lunch, we would go to one set of grandparents, my mom's grand uh, my mom's parents and to see them and on that side of the family there were eight kids that grew into adulthood so a myriad of cousins there and uh at my papa turner's house we would watch uh, sometimes uh pro football as it became popular my grandfather was not a football fan and so it was his house and sometimes he would he would come in on sunday afternoon and he would change the channel uh to wrestling which he loved. <laughs> so, so I grew up knowing the great athletes like Ric Flair and, un, un, and Andre the Giant, right? And then at, late afternoon would come and uh, we would make our way back to the church house for 
church training or some of you knew it as training union or some of you older folks really knew it as BYPU, Baptist Young People's Union or burn your preacher's underwear as they used to <laughs> joke about it. And it was in those classes where you learn doctrine, history, ethics, and practical matters of the faith. And we don't do that anymore, so that's why I'm teaching a lot of ethics and doctrinal matters from the pulpit today. That was followed by evening worship. And from that point, when I was young, we would go to the other grandparents' house, my dad's mom and dad. And there we would uh, see more cousins and usually eat cheeseburgers and fellowship until it was time to go home and get ready for Monday morning. As I became an older teen in my life, I would ride around with friends on Sunday afternoon. That wasn't a sin. And on Sunday evening, I would go and eat pizza or something like that with other students from my church at the Pizza Hut. Well, that was my day on Sundays in the Deep South. Most businesses were closed, even Butenschan's Drugstore. What a name, it's a German name in my little hometown, the Butenschan's on the drugstore. It was closed. There was no CVS or Walgreens. No legal alcohol was sold uh, in most counties that were dry. There was a lot of illegal alcohol sold and drank on those Sundays. But um, in my family, we did not hunt or fish on Sunday. We did not do any yard work on Sunday. We didn't even play tag football on Sundays or go to a baseball diamond to play pickup baseball. That was taboo in the church culture in which I was raised. It was a day of worship, family, fellowship, and rest. And those were the rhythms of my life growing up. Things are so different now. The South is pretty much like the rest of the nation has been for decades. The question, though, is uh, for us is, was this arrangement right that I grew up in? Were those the actual true lines as laid out in the Bible that we were to follow? Are we sinning today if we go fishing or dust our house or wash our cars on a Sunday afternoon? Should we even ask ourselves such questions? Well, that's what we're going to focus upon today and next week. This is going to be fun. And you're going, to agree with, you're going to agree with everything I say because I know you always do. And so this is going to be great. So I want to get started this morning by reading a few passages of Scripture with you. And so we're going to start in the book of Exodus in chapter 20 where we find the Ten Commandments. And in verse 8, Moses writes, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it... You shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Then we go to the New Testament. A couple of verses there. In Romans chapter 10, in verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, Christ is the culmination or the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And then Colossians chapter 2. And in the latter part of this message today, um, I'm going to be looking at a lot of scripture, not so much in the front part of the message, but the latter part of the message, as much as I can get done today. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. 
Paul says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And so today we continue our True Line series. We've covered the Bible, inspiration, authority, creation, the fall, the origin of evil, angels, and grace. That's where we've been over these past few weeks. And currently we're looking now at, now that that we're saved and we have a new heart and mind and spirit, how can we live our lives in a way that pleases God and how can I grow to be like Jesus, which is the goal, right? That I'm going to grow up in Him, to be like Christ. That is God's goal for my life. The word for that is sanctification. And so as He's given us these new hearts, renewed minds, liberated wills by which to grow and be like Him, how do we go about that? We looked at one way to apply this last week when we looked at that taking on a new character, new right dispositions, new attitudes, and putting off old things in our life, and that is a, a discipline that we're to go through in our lives. Well, today we're going to pursue this a bit farther by looking at this thing called the Sabbath and how we um, approach this. And we'll look at it next week as well. And so first of all, as we think about this idea of Sabbath, the first point I want to talk about is under the heading, Free from the Law. I saw this meme yesterday that somebody put up, the theology professor that I know it reminds us that uh, what we've sometimes been taught about the Bible is not exactly right. That moment when you realize what you've been taught about the Bible or what it says is not what the Bible says. Well, you know, in how I was raised, and my parents were only doing what they had been taught, and some of it was not necessarily biblically correct. Much of it was good, though. Please don't hear me seeking to be critical of people, seeking to serve the Lord in the best way they knew. That's not the spirit in which I'm addressing this. But in the large matter of Sunday being a Sabbath for believers or being a day where to treat as Jews treated their Sabbath and imposed their Sabbath in their cultures, that was incorrect. That is not what the Bible teaches. Now, There are some believers who still follow the law and the Sabbath pretty closely. So we have Seventh-day Adventists. And these are Christians who observe much Old Testament law, even the dietary laws, and they actually meet on Saturday for worship. There's one of those on Highway 81 right over here, right close to New Spring, right across from the nursery. There is an Adventist church. And so they worship on Saturday. They follow the dietary laws. And a lot of the things in the Old Testament they say is applicable to them today. So there are some who still follow the law in that way. But I think they're wrong on that understanding of the Bible. And yet so are other groups like Presbyterians and Anglicans or Episcopalians who worship on Sunday but treat the day in their documents as a Sabbath as well. And so if you're from a Presbyterian background in here today, you know the Westminster Confession of Faith, the main Presbyterian statement. It says straight up these words, and I didn't put them on the screen, just listen carefully. He, that is God, hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. 
and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and they say it is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Well, that's the main Presbyterian statement of faith. Their statement goes on to say that believers are on this day, quote, to observe and holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations. That is, if you follow the Westminster Confession of Faith, you're not doing any recreation on Sunday as well. The whole day is to be given up to holy exercises of private and public worship. That's the position of the Presbyterian Church in the Westminster Confession. That's the position of uh, Anglicans in their 39 Articles of Faith. And that's how they view it. Still is a Sabbath that is in force. But again, I believe that on this point they're not fully acknowledging the truth of the New Testament. We are not under the law of the Old Testament. We are not under the laws of the Sabbath or any other law of the Mosaic Covenant. I'll say that again. We are not under the laws of the Sabbath or any other law of the Mosaic Covenant. That is the point of passages, some like we have read, but other ones such as Galatians chapter 3 in verses 23 through 25 where Paul says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. I'm not under the law. You know, we used to sing a song in our churches, and it is a stem winder from the 1800s. Kevin wants to sing it every week, but I won't let him. I've had to have Annie beat him back a few times. But this, this song is entitled, Free from the Law, O Happy Condition, in the 1800s. And it's a great hymn with a great message, I think written by Philip Bliss, great doctrinal te- um, Message, but is the title that gets to what I'm talking about this morning. Free from the law. We are free from the Old Testament law. Oh, happy condition. We are not under law, but under grace. And there is no law of the Sabbath we have to fulfill. And that difference in understanding that we have is reflected in our in our Baptist faith and message, a little booklet I keep telling you and asking you to read. And the 2000 version has been altered and changed from the 63 version, and it clearly shows we don't subscribe to a Sabbath law. And so Article 7, and uh, Article 8, I mean, entitled The Lord's Day, listen to it, I didn't put it on the screen, just want you to listen closely. The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and should include exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private. But listen how it ends. Activities on the Lord's day should be commensurate, or that is in keeping, with the Christian's conscience under the Lordship of Christ. Notice the distinction. We don't call it a Sabbath. 
And we don't say what you're supposed to do outside of that's our institution to worship on this day. But we don't try to direct people how to apply the day, the rest of the day of their lives. How you deal with your leisure time, that sort of thing. And so we don't use the word Sabbath. These other confessions actually use the word Sabbath and prescribe other do's and don'ts beyond the call to worship. But the first thing, the big thing I want you to hear today is that how I grew up where people really looked at it as still that Sabbath in that sense, I don't think that was right. We are free from the law. We do not live under the Sabbath law. Now, you all agree with that, right? (laughs) All right. I might get some emails. <laughs> so if we're free from the law, all of it doesn't apply to us. Then where are the lines? That's the second thing. Growing out of this matter and this broad principle that we're not under the law, this is as good a place as any in this series to talk about how we handle the Old Testament now, those first 39 books in your Bible. If we're not under the law, which we are not, what am I to do with those first 39 books? And so, for instance, the Ten Commandments. Are they still in force if I'm not under the law? They still apply to me in any way, the Ten Commandments. Well, I don't have time to pursue in any depth the various ways that believers approach this matter, but I'm going to give you a broad sweep here with three. There are many big books written on it. One writer and source has been helpful to me is Wayne Grudem, a Baptist theologian who is well-respected across different denominations. I brought his little book along today called, called Christian Ethics. Yeah. And it touches upon some of these matters. It's quite good. It's a good book to read. And I recommend good books to you, but it's a big book, so it's a good book to be like a resource in your home because he has a whole chapter where he deals with things like the Sabbath. So it could be a good good book. You can also use it to kill rodents or even, I think you could probably even take a burglar out with this thing. I mean, it's it's heavy, right? And let me just say that um, there are and have been Christians. If you think about how people handle the law in the Old Testament. There have been Christians, and there's still some around, who see the Old Testament law as pretty much still in force. All of it. And they believe it is universal law for all people in all cultures for all time, and it's, it's applicable to all nations. They come close to even wedding church and state together. And uh, it's a movement known as the theonomy movement. And theonomy means God's law. It also goes under the title Christian Reconstruction. And there are people writing on this. These positions have been held, particularly in conservative Presbyterianism, for the about thir- past 30, 40 years. It's never been a large movement, but they believe things like this, that the Old Testament laws for capital crimes and certain sins should be imposed in modern societies as Israel was called to do in the Old Testament. And so in the minds of theonomists, the death penalty in their mind should be enforced for not only things like murder, but also for adultery, sodomy, homosexuality, rape, incest, striking or cursing your mother or father, kidnapping, sorcery, blasphemy, and a host of other sins that are listed in the Old Testament law for Israel to enforce. So no wonder when some pagans in our culture and non-believers hear things such as some forms of Christian nationalism 
They hear these are people who want to do what the Old Testament said to do to people like me, and so they're afraid. Of some people, they perceive to be evangelical Christians in this country who hold to that view of theonomy or Christian reconstruction. And then there are other believers and their mainstream evangelical Christians. They approach the Bible in this way, the position that the New Covenant, the New Testament, did not replace the Old Covenant. It only updated it. And so parts of the Old Covenant are still in force. So you with me? you got the theonomists who say, enforce the whole Old Testament law and stone your kid if he talks back to you. The state should execute people like that. Then you have others who say the Old Testament has not been replaced by the New Testament, but only the Old Covenant's been updated and there's only one big covenant. And so they divide the law in this way. They would say, well, parts of the law, the ceremonial parts of the law, that is the the laws in the Old Testament talk about how you worship at the temple. Well, that's no longer enforced because Jesus came and now we're the temple. So we don't follow that part of the law. They would say the civil parts of the law, that is the law given to the nation of Israel to run the nation, the governing law. Israel is no longer in existence in that way, so that part of the law is no longer enforced. But they would say that there's still the moral law in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments, the other moral laws, and these are to be followed because this is God's law for all time, for all people, and it's universal. And they say that's uh, summarized under the Ten Commandments, and so it's still law were to follow, and thus they even have the Christian Sabbath, as we have said. And many Southern Baptists have followed that approach through the years, either because they don't know their doctrine well, or haven't been taught their doctrine well, and so they still look at it in that way. But I just want to say, because I don't have a lot of time, there's a lot of problems you run into if you approach this and saying, well, I don't follow the laws about going up to the temple. There's no temple anymore. I don't have to follow the laws that were for Israel in running their government. But there are a lot of other moral laws in the Old Testament I'm to follow. Well, sometimes that gets sticky. How do you distinguish that? So in the Old Testament time, their laws had flat roofs. And if I built the house, I was told that I had to put like a, what do you call it, a parapet around the top on the top. So if somebody came to have supper with me on top of the roof, they wouldn't fall off. That's a moral law, isn't it? Because I want to protect my neighbor. I don't want them to fall off and die or the kid to fall off the roof in that way. So, Larry Stone, when you build a house, then you're going to have to build that on top of every house so that people don't fall off if that part of the law is still in force. It gets really hard to decide what applies, what doesn't, if you say part of it is still in force. And then many other evangelicals, and that would be us, and this would be my position, and I think it's reflected in our Baptist faith and message, you would say, no, the old covenant was totally replaced by the new That is why there is a new covenant, Jesus said, written in his what? Blood. That is why we use terms like new as compared to old. And in that sense, as far as the law of Moses goes, we are free from all of it as law. That does not mean that we don't have any lines to go by, nothing we have to be concerned about obeying. I'll come to that in a moment. But no, we approach our Bibles in this way. 
So if you go to the Bible, before the law of Moses was given, it started in Exodus 20, right around the Ten Commandments. But from Genesis 1-1 to Exodus 20, before the law was given, you have God speaking about things that were right and wrong. And that is universal law. Don't murder. If a man takes somebody else's life, his life shall be taken. Genesis chapter 9, right? Marriage, one man, one woman. That God said a man shall leave his father and mother and cling unto his wife. So we observe that. Those commandments are for all people for all time. But then we have the law given from Exodus 20 on, and we're not under that. And when we come to the New Testament, we hear Paul and others say things about the law that then help us navigate further. So I asked Bill to read 1 Corinthians 9. I want you to turn back there with me this morning as our scriptural call to worship. I'm going to show you how we should navigate forward. So I'm not even going to get to Sunday today. That's next Sunday. But I'm telling you we're not under the law. Now I'm going to show you how the Old Testament works in relationship to the New Testament. That's all I'm trying to accomplish today. And I dare say, most of you have never heard this, never been taught this, because we don't do a great job of teaching this, and I think a lot of people are confused because they don't know how they should be handling their Bibles. So in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19, Paul's talking about being a missionary and bending himself so he can reach all kinds of people. He says, verse 19, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, that would be the Jews, I became like one under the law. But what does Paul say about himself? Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. To those not having the law, that is the Gentiles, no written law, I became like one of them, not having the law. But listen to this. He's just told us he's not under the Old Testament law, but notice what he says. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the weak. You might want to underline that. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. Well, what is this law of Christ he's talking about here? Well, it would be... All that Jesus taught in his incarnation about what was right and what was wrong, behavior and dispositions. Jesus said certain things while he was here, right? He says, you've heard the commandments and he repeats, you shall not murder, you shall not kill. He repeats those things, right? And so we have that. That's the law of Christ. We have Jesus' example. That's the law of Christ. But Jesus also said some other things as well before he left, after he was raised from the dead. And we hear that in Acts chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. So in Acts chapter 1, Luke says in verse 1, In my former book, the the book of Luke, Theophilus, Theophilus, I wrote all about, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, To the apostles he had chosen, or giving commandments, literally. So Jesus spoke to the apostles and gave them instructions and commands. Acts 2.42 says the early church gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
And so their teaching came to be looked at in the same manner as the teaching of Jesus, for the Spirit inspired them. Jesus said the Spirit was going to come and bear them along and teach them more things. And so the teaching of the apostles becomes also the authoritative teaching of God, the law of Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, and I've got these on the screen, you can look them up later, but I do hope you'll look at them with me, okay? Because I want you to see this. I don't want any emails this week. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Paul says, if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. Or in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, Peter puts it this way. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Jesus said things like this, if you love me, keep my what? Commandments. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so, in the New Testament, you and I have the law of Christ summarized under those two greatest commands. They said to Jesus, what are the two greatest commands? Say it with me. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the New Testament fleshes and teases out those two big, big aspects of what God wants us to do. It's all fleshed out in like the Sermon on the Mount. All those ethical lists in the New Testament, like we looked at in chapter 4 of Ephesians last week, where it says, you must no longer live like the Gentiles live in the emptiness of their minds, in all the ways they're living. He says, but you didn't learn Christ that way. And he says, for you as a believer, you begin to put on this behavior. And you have these lists in Ephesians, Colossians. You don't find none of that in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, you do. That's the law of Christ that I'm to apply to my life. And I would add this about the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, in the law of Christ, nine of the ten are repeated. The only one that's not repeated is the Sabbath. So in that sense, the law of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, are still applicable in my life. No idols right before me. No stealing, all those things. And so in that sense, they are still to be heeded in the law of Christ. That is how we handle it today. So let me give you four key points. I'm going to wrap this up. And I hate to preach this way, much as you hate to hear it sometimes, as far as like, I hate preaching like it's a lecture, but I, you know, I don't know the way to do this to help you dig into this. And I hear a lot of you tell me you're learning a lot through this and it's helping you, so I hope that it really is. And again, I, I never heard any of this growing up about how I handle the Old Testament and the New. And it caused a lot of unnecessary debates and angst in my life, in my family's life, my home life, because of how do I apply those 39 books. Well, let me give you four things here and we'll be done today. First, as we kind of wrap this up, the law of Christ that we're, we're following now, it focuses more on our inward response that motivates our outward obedience. What's the difference between me and David in the Old Testament? David did not have the law of God written on his heart. But Don Cox has the law of God written on his heart and on his mind by the Spirit who indwells me. 
And so we have power to obey and to see more deeply into the glory of God's commands. And Jesus takes it to that level. So think about what Jesus says about thou shalt not kill. You've heard it said of old, you shall not kill. You shall not murder, right? But what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? But I say unto you, what did he say? If you hate, y'all know this verse? If you hate your brother in your heart, right? You've already murdered him in essence. So not only am I to not outwardly kill somebody, but in my heart I'm not to harbor hate toward anybody. So Jesus takes the law deeper into us as believers to whom much is given, much is required. We were so corrupt in our hearts and so he's cleansing us and teaching us in that way. And We have the power now to overcome those deep lodgings of sin. And we should desire to do that. If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. Secondly, as we're filled with the Holy Spirit and lean upon the Spirit for power, He will help us fulfill the law of Christ and it's not a burden. Old Testament people walked around and keeping the law was a burden. Keeping the Sabbath was a burden, wasn't it? It was such a relief when Jesus said that uh, man is not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. But for Jews, I mean, it was a burden. I mean, go to Israel today, on yesterday, on Saturday. If you go to Israel on Saturday, do you know that if you get on an elevator, they're all preset for each floor. The buttons don't work. They're preset for each floor because to punch a button on Sabbath is work. And everything in their life, they still, right, under that law, it's imprisoning in that way. But as you and I lean upon the Spirit and He produces fruit in our lives. Remember what Paul said in the book of Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And down in verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Christians are self-controlled. But then he says, against such things there is no law. What does he mean by that? He means that you and I are fulfilling God's highest desires, His law, right? When we're living that way, the fruit of the Spirit. And so he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. He says, we are in Christ, we've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so we are fulfilling the law of Christ now by the power of the Spirit. Thirdly, now that we're following Christ, we desire to know Him and obey Him out of thanksgiving so that we can grow in intimacy, so that we can know Him better and become more like Him. That's why I want to obey the Lord. I want to please Him, but I want to thank Him in how I live because He saved me out of my sin as a gift. And He has empowered me to become like Him in my character. What a gift! And I want to pursue that. And you know, as I pursue that, I I also get to know God more intimately. Do you remember what Jesus said in, in John 14, 21, the same night He's arrested? Don't miss this in your Bible. It's so important. John 14, Jesus said, verse 21, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them 
and show myself to them, manifest myself to them. What is he saying? Is Jesus going to show up in a vision for you? No, he's saying that as you obey the Lord, because you love Jesus, you grow to be more like him, you're pleasing to him, and he makes himself more and more known to you in intimacy and relationship. You want to know God better? Well, obey him. Obey him, follow him. And so the admonition Jesus said when he calls the disciples was what? Follow, follow me. Paul says, follow me as I follow after Christ. We're disciples, we follow. And that's why 1 John 2, verse 3 and verse 6 reminds us about that same idea as well. 1 John 2, verse 3 and verse 6. John says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. That's the law of Christ. Verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And so our whole approach to life is different than Old Testament saints. We obey, but not out of fear, not out of some rule, out of trying to find God's approval or doing all the right things, crossing the T's, dotting the I's. But like a child we live now. To please and walk closely with our parent who has adopted us and loves us and will never let us go. And I want to be like him. And the fourth thing and final thing I want to say today, then how does the Old Testament work? If I'm not under the law, but I still have these 39 books, they're there. What changed after Jesus' death and resurrection for Christians? How do we handle it? Well, the Old Testament now serves to me to be a guide for wisdom and warning of chastisement and the cost of living wrongfully and sinfully. The Old Testament is still God's Word. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, is inspired by God. It's talking about the Old Testament as well. And given by God for teaching and doctrine, uh, all those things that the Bible has given to us. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. I'm out of time, but 1 Corinthians 10, 11 tells us another thing about the warning of the Old Testament, about the Jews who didn't fully follow through and uh, God's chastisement came upon them, so it's a warning for us in that way. We find wisdom in the Proverbs, we find comfort in the Psalms, we find wisdom and warning from Old Testament people about how David blew it. We find warning about... God's real chastisement of his people as he chastised David because he's determined to make us holy. And we learn how to use our New Testament then by our Old Testament by looking at how the New Testament believers used it. I only have time for one example. So I want to show you this example and then we're going to stop. Y'all okay with me stopping? You want me to keep going? can't even laugh. You're so tired. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 9. I want to show you how this works. So we're saying we're not under the law, but we're under the law of Christ. And wherever the Old Testament is repeated, we need to follow that as well as the other things that are given to us in the New Testament. The Old Testament still serves as a guide for direction, wisdom. It is there to warn us of disobedience, but here's how the New Testament writers draw upon the Old Testament for wisdom. So, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 9, for it is written in the what? 
law of Moses. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Now, that law has nothing to do with temple worship, ceremonial law. It has nothing to do with the civil law about how the government is to be run. This is about taking care of your farm animals, right? Now, listen to what Paul says. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely, he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Paul is saying here, I have the basis by which you should pay an apostle for their teaching because of the example in the law. I'm not under this law, but this is wisdom teaching. You see what, what they're doing with it? Use the same um, thing about talking about paying pastors. And you find the Old Testament law used in that way in so many places in the New Testament that it is our source of wisdom and guidance and help in how we're to live our lives. So what about Sunday? Well, that'll be our sole focus next Sunday morning. Where did the previous generation get it right? Where are we perhaps getting it wrong how should I live and guide my family regarding the Lord's Day? How should I respond to a culture that does not know Christ and will seek to impose itself on my life and my family on the very day that I'm saying Jesus rose from the dead? And the world should take heed and notice that. And one way I do that is gathering with the family of God.